I was uh, amazed but not surprised last Sunday night how many people came up to Grady and had some kind of connection to him. They went to school with him, they were related to him, they had heard him speak before, went to church with him, went to school with him, went to camp with him, <laughs> all kinds of connections. And that's one thing about Grady is he's well connected uh, in the church, in the brotherhood, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted him to come and, and bless us and speak to us because he is so connected to congregations across our country. And especially given the topic that he's speaking on, it's so relevant for us to look outside of ourselves, look outside of, of what's going on here and just see sort of some of the, the bigger global trends that are happening and how those impact the church and how those impact who we are and what we're trying to do to make disciples, to leave an imprint of the gospel in people's hearts and lives. And so I am looking forward to what Grady has to say tonight in part two of engaging faith in a post-truth culture. Grady has been doing ministry for over three decades. He currently serves with Hope Network, does church consulting through that, through that organization for churches all across the country. He also works at an Oklahoma Christian as the church resources, uh, director of church resources. And so he is getting more and more connected to the churches in this area. And I think he'll have more to say about that as well. But uh, very networked individual, very resourceful. And I know that he will bless us uh, through his insights from scripture and through what's happening in our world. So Grady, come up here and bless us tonight. Well, it's good to be back with you this evening. I did meet a lot of people and reconnect with some of them, and most of them I liked. It was really, it was really good to be at Edmond again and, and connect with some people last Sunday night. And so tonight we kind of wrap up this short little series, and uh, it's not even close to being a wrap-up, I want to invite you two weeks from tonight at 6.30 at Hardeman Auditorium. We're having one voice. It's a, it's a walk through Romans using area ministers. Uh, Brother Stephen Maxwell is a, a competent worship leader, and he'll be leading us in worship, and we'll be using area ministers to read scripture and to pray, and about 75-minute service with wonderful singing in Hardeman and a fellowship time afterwards, we'll be glorifying together God together in Jesus Christ. It's a walk through Romans culminating in Romans 15 where it says glorifying God together with one voice. And so I want to invite you. It starts at 630. They'll be singing from 6 to um, 630. And then the congregational worship will start at 630 that evening till about 8 o'clock. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Memorial Road is letting out that night and Hardeman's not all that big. So you might want to get there early, and, and whoever's preaching that Sunday night at Edmond, <coughs> Randy, <coughs> make it short. <coughs> uh, excuse me, I'm just clearing my throat there uh, for that. Well, I got some good news and bad news for you tonight. And uh, I need a little audience participation to kind of get us going on this. I want this half, it's the middle, we want this half to, all you have to remember is this phrase, uh, Oh, that's good news. Oh, that's, let's practice. Oh, that's good news. This half, you, get, you say, mm, oh, that's bad news. Oh, that's bad news. let me hear it one more time. Oh, let's hear this. Oh, I think the bad news wins because you got all these adolescents over here that practice cheerleading regularly. Anyway, we're grateful for your presence. Well, 
There was a man who went on an airplane ride and he was really enjoying it until the airplane just stalled in middle air. But fortunately, there was a parachute on board and he began to open the parachute and it didn't open. Well, as he began to fall quickly to the earth, he noticed as he got closer to the earth that there was a wagon full of hay. But he also noticed that there were pitchforks sticking up from the hay. Well, the good, well, he missed, he missed the pitchfork. But he also missed the wagon. Well, in every part of life, there's good news and there's bad news. Won't you agree with that? I mean, there's good news. Almost daily, we're faced with good news and bad news. And tonight, there's a little bit of good news and bad news. Let's do a little bit of review before we begin. And so, as we began last week, I used, um, I used this image. This image of a bridge in Choloteca, Honduras, that absolutely goes nowhere. Because in 1999, Hurricane Mitch rerouted the water away from the bridge and the Honduran government now has made it a tourist attraction because they didn't know what to do with it and couldn't afford to reroute the river in Choloteca, Honduras. Now, what we talked about is, to me, this is an image of where the church or Christian people, disciples of Christ, people following Jesus, find themselves in our culture that the waters of the culture used to run to and through and under and a little bit around, but now they, it seems like the cultural waters have just shifted. And there's lots, lots of ways of talking about that, but this idea of post-truth that's not really new, call it post-modernity, call it uh, the, the uh, world we lived in since the Enlightenment where rational thinking dominated in systems, post-truth, post-modernity, kind of questions that. So there's two key characteristics we talked about last week if you weren't here. Number one is we live in a world where emotions are over facts. That one's personal belief system and what they believe and what they feel is greater than the facts of any authority whatsoever. Number two, we talked about the loss of a meta-narrative. Now, what is meta-narrative? If you're an English person, a meta-narrative is simply a large story that encompasses all of life. Now, that's not what I believe. That's not what you believe as far as the loss of a meta-narrative. And even though we have emotion that we sometimes deny in our Christian faith, and we have emotions of fear and doubt and struggle, but the reality is we come back to God's word, the Bible, and a Christian worldview is this. The Bible, we view the Bible as the God who speaks. And it's God's story from Genesis to Revelation that continues as we accept Jesus Christ and it encompasses all other human stories. The only other religion is the religion of Islam that basically has the viewpoint that it encompasses all other stories. Other religions and other parts of the world, they have their story and they respect their story, but they also respect your story. And so our story is God's story. The other thing we talked about last week with this story is this story is encapsulated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is, if you're so worried and anxious worried and anxious about what's going on in our culture 
and your answer for what's going on in our culture is motivated by the right president or the right political party or the right social policies or the right moral standards or the right anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the gospel hasn't taken hold in your soul. And the gospel is a holistic gospel encompassing all of life. It's not just that the gospel is, hey, I obey the gospel, I'm called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I, the reason I obey the gospel is so I can go to heaven someday, and then I can just live as a good person now, and, and when I die, I'll go to heaven. The only problem with that logic and that motivation is it's not biblical. Let me let that sit just for a moment. When you read every passage in the New Testament in regards to baptism, the emphasis is on how you're doing your life now because of your commitment to Christ and you've been crucified to Christ. You don't live. Christ lives you in you. In the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. There is no biblical passage in the New Testament that says be baptized to go to heaven. You're baptized for your salvation and salvation is what God has done in the past, what God is doing in the present and what God will do in the future to shape and form the world. The gospel is a holistic gospel. But if all you do is hear a believer can't be baptized and just simply live a good life, then the gospel hasn't taken hold of our soul that shapes and forms and renews all of humanity. Does that make sense at all? This is yes, this is no. My contacts are all fuzzy and I can't see you, but you look really good, all right? So the gospel's holistic. Now, if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius, most of us know. We've been in church a long time. And the question becomes, what's this snapshot of this holistic gospel? What is, this snap, what is a snapshot of this holistic gospel look like? Go to Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Luke, who wrote Acts through the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit, consistently through the book of Acts gives us snapshots of what a holistic gospel is. It's not just a gospel that gets you into heaven. It's not just a gospel in order for you, you need to obey this gospel to be baptized so you can have a good life. Watch this description. Beginning in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then he says, we are witnesses to all that he did in both Judea and Jerusalem. It goes on to talk about the death on the cross. Verse 34 through 38 is a snapshot of the gospel from Genesis on. So what we have is the power of the Holy Spirit. What we have is Jesus went about healing people and doing good. It's holistic. It's not just get my soul saved so I can go to heaven. It's a holistic gospel if that makes sense. So that begs the question, how do we communicate that? And we talked last week about two different cities that embody the struggle that we have, Jerusalem and Athens. So 
in Jerusalem. It's, we got a slide on this, I think. Next slide. Should, where do we live today? We talked about last week that there is a shift, in my opinion, and it's, I'm not alone in this, that many of us in this room that were raised in church, for example, if you were raised in a church environment, would you raise your hand? 96.9%. That's really good. I, I calculate fast. It's just a gift I have. And, and so if you were raised in church, you were raised like you were living in Jerusalem. You understood Ten Commandments. You had a knowledge of the Old Testament. You, had, you heard the stories of Scripture. You understood like people in Jerusalem who were raised with a set of ethics. You understood the prophets. You, had, you expected a Messiah to come. That's the world we were raised in. With a post-truth culture, with a post-truth culture, I find people all the time that don't have a clue who Noah is. I experienced it 15 or 20 years ago when I was preaching in Mansfield, Texas and Irving, Texas. I got up one Sunday morning and I said, everybody knows the story of Abraham. Thousand people in Irving, Texas in this church on a Sunday morning. And I just said, I made the assumption as a preacher, everyone knows the story of Abraham. And so I went on, preached the sermon. Monday morning, there was a card filled out in the pew. The note said this, first time here, wasn't raised in church, have no clue who Abraham is, call me. I'm just glad she said, call me. That was 15 years ago. If I meet people all the time, even raised in the church, raised in a church environment, that if you take away 50 to 60, maybe 70 pet passages of scripture, we're as lost as anybody. Can we not just use the Bible as something that we manage and we control, but can we think biblically? Quoting the Bible and using a proof text is not necessarily thinking biblically. Do we understand God's mission? Do we understand what God's up to in the world? Can we look at a passage and reason what is this saying about who God is? The first instinct is who God is. Thursday and Friday, I was in Burbank, California, well, Los Angeles, I flew into Burbank, and I'd been invited, and some of you don't even, won't even know what I'm talking about, some of the will. I was invited to teach 30 to 40 men, young ministers, and mostly campus ministers, in the International Churches of Christ. The International Church of Christ was a segment of the Churches of Christ who was very radical and very committed and they had great tensions with the mainstream Churches of Christ and a friend of mine basically said, no more, we want fellowship. We're same Lord, same baptism, same communion, same Jesus. So he invited me to Los Angeles and as I'm going around the room on Friday teaching this seminar in Hebrews, teaching them Hebrews, I said, talk to me about how you read scripture. They said, what do you mean how we read scripture? It means what it says, says what it means. Ah, you do have a common ground with us. I, and one young person said, he's probably a campus minister who is very evangelistic. He said, how we read scripture, what do you mean by that? 
what's your first instinct when you open the Bible? And he said, well, I, I just, I look at it and I try to draw, see where it applies to my life. And, and I said, what would, it, what would change if when you read a passage of scripture, you're asking, what does this say about who God is first? Because the Bible's really not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Adam and Eve, or Noah. The Bible is about who God is. And God's life and character and nature and mission and his design of human beings. And he said, well, I, I never really thought about that. I never thought about that at all. Just because you've been sitting in church for years and know 50 to 60 to 70 passages and know the traditions of your church and our heritage doesn't mean we know how to think biblically. Sometimes I feel we've worshiped the Bible rather than the God of the Bible. That was my experience in my life and it slapped me in the face and I had to come to grips with how I read scripture, how I reason rather than just going on autopilot. So what's the shift? The shift from Jerusalem is a shift to Athens. And we talked last week about an act, Acts 17. Acts 2 is a sermon, Peter. Acts 17 is a sermon, Paul. Listen close. When Paul preaches at the Areopagus, he quotes their own philosophers. He reasons about, with, about their own poets. He engages the philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, the serious-minded ones and the party ones. Life is a party, just live it. There's not one passage of Scripture quoted. If Randy or Kent or anybody up here didn't do that regularly, you'd say, we're not hearing any what kind of preaching. Now, since we're with Christians, Christians need to know the word and we preach the Bible. Did he, did he tell the truth in Acts 17, 16 following? He started with who God is. God is creator. How God shaped the times and the places so that man would reach out for him and grope for him and find him, although he's not far from any of... He reasoned with them, even quoted their poets, who said, in him we live and move and have our being, and did not even recognize it. I notice your objects of worship. I want you to think about the shift from Jerusalem to Athens and how we communicate with people today. Now, here's what we all know. Truth is truth is truth is truth is truth. No matter who says it, where they say it, and how they say it. If an atheist says something and it's consistent with the word of God, it's still what? Help me, church. True. So if you think we possess all truth and it's only us and the way we see it, we have to begin to listen to people where they are and begin to ask questions. And we begin, like I said last week, with two ears and one mouth. So that catches us up a little bit. And now I want to start applying it as I promised I would. Since we are living in Athens, 
many of us in Edmond don't see that. So I want to talk about the Edmond bubble. It's kind of quiet. Hmm. I did a little research, and here's some things that you probably know. That the current population of Edmond is 91,191 people. The ethnic diversity, and I want you to think about the bubble, is 77% white, 5.6% black, African Americans, 5.6% Hispanic, 3.2% Asian, 2.3% American Indian. Almost eight out of every 10 people in Edmond, Oklahoma, have a white world view. Let's go on. The population, 91,191. 93% of people in Edmond, Oklahoma, speak English. 53% are college grads. Ages 18 to 54 equal 50% of the city. And the median household income in Edmond is $19,000 more than the median household income in the United States of America. But here's the one that's really interesting and why you might not feel we live in a post-truth culture. Just let it sit for a minute. Did you know there are 108 churches in Edmond? I'm not talking Oklahoma City. Does this surprise anybody? You can still go to heaven if you say no or yes, it's fine. There are 108 churches, and I'm counting nine churches of Christ because of Brother Travis Aiken's memorial that's leading a new church plant of memorial in far north Edmond. 108 churches. Now look at this. There are 18 Baptist churches, nine churches of Christ, nine Methodists, nine Presbyterian, four Christian churches. That would be under the Restoration Heritage, mostly Disciples Group, Disciples of Disciples, Christian Church, Church of Christ. That would be, uh, and four Catholic, and there's a, a lot more, one of this and one of that, and there's a Mennonite, and there's this, and there's, there's like eight community churches. What I find interesting is the source I got this from, we consider ourselves in which one of these categories? Well, Church of Christ. What's the other one that we really want to claim? Help me. Non-denominational. Now, here's what's interesting. I don't know all of them personally, but I can almost guarantee you the Bible is taught in every one of those churches. I can almost guarantee you that if you ask if they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, yes. I can almost guarantee you in all of those churches, there's some form of baptism. I can guarantee you in every one of those churches, there are people who hold up ethical living. When I looked at this, I began to think about Edmund is in its own bubble and you may not feel the pain of living in a post-truth culture. Does this make sense? He's the worship leader today. He agrees. That means it's a majority. Okay? You got to think about this. Now, the good thing about living in Edmond is all the things we just mentioned. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is we can all pretty much communicate. Same language. 
The good news is there's a, there's a, a stream of faith in this community and, and people respond in faith and do good works and help others. But what's the message of the Edmund Church of Christ? Making disciples. Go, connect, embrace. Who? What's the nature of your conversations? Here's some challenges. Number one, in a post-truth culture, and they're rooted in these passages, I'll try to just highlight some of them rather than reading every one of them so you'll know that the Bible tells me so. Number one is comfortable faith. Comfortable faith. The Edmund Church of Christ, Memorial Church of Christ, New Hope, the Springs, the whole continuum of, of churches of Christ. Randy and I estimated on a Sunday there's 42 to 4,400 people in churches of Christ that worship in Edmund. If you take this Edmund, that Churches of Christ in Edmund, and you take Park Plaza Church of Christ in Tulsa, that's probably, those two together are probably more than most of the rest of the state of Oklahoma on Sunday morning in Churches of Christ. Well, are you telling us not to live in Edmund? You want us to live in Old Karchi? You want us to move to Beaver? How are we gonna make a living? All I'm saying is, maybe you don't feel the pain of living in a post-truth culture. Maybe you don't feel it, and maybe you don't know anybody. So my question is, along with this making disciples, to offset that is Colossians 4, 2 through 6, pray for an open door for the gospel. Or another way of saying it is, for whom are you praying to have a relationship with? That's not already a person of faith. Not always, already someone that you say, well, he's a good Baptist, he's a good Methodist. They're, they, they, they're good people and, and I know we talk and we argue about this and that. When will we get past, when will we get past thinking that our mission is to simply have a day where we are perfecting everybody else's doctrine rather than sharing the gospel with somebody that doesn't know Christ? When will that happen? It's the standard of church, only that we're perfecting the doctrine. And incidentally, a little speech about doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching. When it talks about, Paul tells Timothy, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, substitute these words, healthy teaching, because the word sound and the word healthy are the same from the original language. And, and teaching, uh, healthy doctrine, doctrine is teaching, sound is healthy, how do you know a doctrine is healthy? How do you know a doctrine is healthy? How do you know it's sound doctrine? Here's the standard. Look at the kind of people it produces. How do you know something is a sound doctrine? Look at the kind of people that doctrine produces. That's the emphasis of Paul on teaching accord with what, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In other words, we want healthy teaching to produce healthy people full of, full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. 
We want people to believe that if Jesus Christ is Lord, it invades every aspect of our lives. It's not just a Sunday event. It's not just about being a good person. Sometimes I tell churches, God didn't call us to be good people. He called us to be his people. There's a lot of good people in Rotary. There's a lot of good people in Lions Club. There's a lot of good people everywhere. He didn't call us just to be good people and hold on to Christ so we can go to heaven someday. He wants the world transformed. He wants us to be so consumed by and so informed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Is it all right to say amen here? I mean, I usually get it in my, you know, not just African-American churches either. Speak with one voice. So the second implication is convenient relationships. With whom and where do you spend time? With whom and where do you spend time? Little confession here. The most evangelistic and not not manipulative, the most effective I ever was as a minister was when I was a youth minister. A preacher who I respect, who's gone on to be with the Lord that I worked with for years said, I know you want to preach and I believe God's given you the gifts to preach, Grady, but I'm telling you, if you really are interested in youth, in reaching people, stay a youth minister as long as possible because once you become a preacher, your agenda is everything except that. It's about running the church. It's about working with the elders. It's about managing things. It's about handling complaints. It's about hospital visitation. It's about everything except evangelism. And you're so worn out keeping church things going that you don't have time for any relationships with anybody that's not a Christian. I said, yeah, it's going to be different with me. After about 15 years of doing it, I was sitting at home one Monday morning looking at my past few months and realized I'm consumed by church. And I am consumed by church activity. And I'm consumed with pleasing the brethren. And I love my brothers and sisters. But I had no space or margin in my life to do the very thing that I was called to by God is not only to preach the gospel, but teach the gospel and build relationships with people for the sake of the world and to the glory of God. And as I sat in my easy chair on a Monday morning drinking a cup of coffee, that reality hit me like a ton of bricks and I wept because I'd been away from so many people that needed Christ in the name of taking care of the, help me, church and the expectations well the preacher didn't visit me and the preacher didn't do this and the preacher didn't do that and the preacher when has it ever been about the preacher and being the body of Christ that's my question take inventory of who your friends are Take inventory and begin, as you begin to pray, who are you inviting into your life to experience hospitality 
with others that, you, that are, have faith in Christ? Who are you praying with that you could, in a healthy way, be held accountable for reaching out? Third implication, the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel in my life, that the gospel is in my soul, and it's so much in my soul, and it causes me to see the world differently. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5? From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, although we used to regard Christ in this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. There's something that changed, something that happens, something that transforms in my life because of Jesus Christ. So the question has to do with what do you believe? Who do you believe in? How are you to behave? And with whom do you belong and who do you belong to? Because in a post-truth culture, any kind of community life really is about me. Is it, is it community for me or is it me for the community? If it was just community for me, why did Jesus spend all this time with the 12 disciples? Why is there so much emphasis on the one another in the New Testament? Why is there so much emphasis on the community of faith? Why, why? Because... In a post-truth society, we are so consumed. The society is so consumed. And in church, we're so, it's so much about my comfort, my habits, my convenience, my pew. Recently, I was in a church, and I went up, and this, I met this sweet lady. And I said, how are you tonight? She says, fine, as long as so-and-so doesn't take my seat. Whoa, looks like there's plenty of room here. This is where I sit. My daddy helped establish this church. We helped pay for these pews. I'd say the, that's called entitlement. One of the elders said, oh, you don't want to mess with her. She'll chew you up and spit you out, which is really a great challenge for me. And I just went up and hugged her. It's awesome. And whispered in her ear a few other things too. But nevertheless, the call of the gospel. So as we kind of pull things down, I, I, I have this image these images, which one is it for you in your life? So you think, and I know the campus ministry, I believe is, I, I understand the campus ministry's kind of mission is believe, what is it? Belong, help me, become. I love that. These three dynamics are going on all the time in our life and as I grew up as a church person, the emphasis is on what you believe, what you believe, what you believe, what you believe. And you could have fellowship with somebody as long as you believe the same. So the emphasis and what we led with is right belief, right belief, right belief. I'm not against right belief. We aren't talking about doctrine, this teaching that's healthy. You gotta have something to ground things in because doctrine explains our faith. Doctrine establishes boundaries. Doctrine orients our lives, all of those. It's not some theoretical, boring stuff. It's very live, dynamic stuff. But what do we lead with? In my experience, we've led with believe, believe, believe. Make sure they have the right belief. And, and as soon as they have the right belief, make sure that they start acting right, which is what? Which one? Behave. Behave. There's a certain behavior to the community of faith. Unless our own people think they can act any way they want to and not be called out for it. Sometimes in a church, there's a lot of tension and a lot of crisis and 
The elders say, well, what do you think we ought to do? I said, I think you ought to knock on those people's door, literally, not ring the doorbell, with two elders and say, we don't act that way in this church. We love you. We're glad you're here. But you've been acting in passive-aggressive ways, and that behavior is not acceptable. We don't throw fits. We don't act unbecomingly. What's really going on in your life? Let us talk. Let us visit. But no. So behavior does matter. Behavior does matter. How we treat one another and how we act and, and this in Christ. And then there's belonging. So what you have is we start with belief. We go to behavior and then you can belong. Here's my struggle with that. In a post-truth culture, here's what I believe. And they'll go, well, that's fine. I, I don't really believe that. I'm not really into that. And so discussion over. So that means any sharing of faith will take longer than usual. It will take longer than a day's past. It's not just a matter of handing them some information to believe. It's not just a matter of argue, even arguing and reasoning with people what to believe. It's, it's going to take longer. And, it's, it's, and you look at the behavior of some kids. I remember flying on a plane, and this little girl was absolutely out of control on a plane. I was on Southwest Airlines, and I'm thinking, why doesn't somebody do that? She's crawling over the seat. She's throwing, you know, uh, what goldfish in the floor. And she, her mother's just sitting there staring out the window, not doing anything. Now, being the nice, shy, bashful Church of Christ preacher that I am, I wanted to get up and say, what in the world are you doing? But I did not. The plane landed. And I heard her say to the person next to her, I am so sorry. I got on this plane and my husband died. My husband died 15 minutes before I got on this plane. And I'm in shock. And I know my daughter has been out of control. And all of a sudden, my, hey, lady, take care of your kid, went from that to, oh, my goodness. There's a reason for their behavior. And she needed my compassion and kindness. She didn't need my judgment. But I didn't know the assumptions we make about the way people are behaving. So let's put it all together. This would be a wonderful discussion for Bible classes, a wonderful discussion for over dinner with somebody or over breakfast. I'm looking forward to Mark Coleman buying me breakfast soon, but he doesn't have time because he's got appointments every morning with someone. But here's the deal. What do we lead with in a post-truth culture and why? Do all three of them matter? Let's ask teenagers. Do all three of these matter? Do you have a sense of belonging in your youth group? You want to be a part of a group? Does it matter what you believe? Yeah. Does it matter how you act? Your parents are going, you bet you it does. You better act decent right now. Believe, behave, belong. This becomes, which one do we lead with? It's not that they all don't matter. Which one do you lead with? It's going to take longer. You're going to pray for a relationship. You're going to pray for an open door. Who gives us clues on wh which way to lead? Jesus tells me, this I 
no. As I travel across the country, the people that I have to remind who they belong to are church people. And I say it like this. The phrase Church of Christ is not an institutional slogan over the door. It is an organic, life-breathing description of who we belong to and who's the center of our life and we need to follow him everywhere. That's Church of Christ. Who gives us clues on which one to do? Jesus does. As a church... Making disciples, we can argue what Paul has to say, and Paul certainly said a lot about Jesus. Death, burial, and resurrection primarily doesn't really deal with his life very much at all. But most of our arguments in church are over what Paul says. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would be a full-blown cynic. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I could not have a way to get to sleep some nights. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would not know how to act responsibly and in a healthy way. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would not welcome the children when they get on my nerves. If it wasn't for Jesus, I would not do so many things that I do. We are the church that belongs to Christ. When the Samaritan woman, what did he lead with? Belonging. She was shocked that he was there. The woman caught in adultery, what did he lead with? Belonging. Just go through the ministry of Jesus. He led with belonging, and it's a journey to, for behavior and a journey for belief. Walk with people flowing from your prayer life. So what? I think you can trust the story of Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's not the gospel. That's the response to the gospel that was developed by man as a method to get people to respond responsibly and biblically to be baptized. But here we believe, believe repent, confess, be baptized. It's not the gospel. The gospel is the blessed assurance of the story of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? That's what it is. So trust the story of Jesus in your life. Let him call you in back to himself by reading the gospels and letting that be the ministry clues of where you start in belonging and behaving and believing. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's my application. I don't mind people disagreeing. I kind of want you to think a little bit. Hopefully I've helped. If I can help you at Oklahoma Christian, don't call. No, I'm just kidding. I'm only up here seven to 10 days a month, but I'll be glad to visit with you, pray for you, love the Edmund Church. But at 63 years of age, I know I look good for 63 but at 63 years of age, I want the rest of my life to be so Christ-centered. So Christ-centered. I want to reach people wherever you are. Hopefully, this has been helpful to you. You know...
Why were you baptized? Why was baptized to be saved? So what good are you right now if all you're doing is waiting to go to heaven? Let the gospel just consume you. But if you've never been baptized into Christ, it is literally a beginning point. And we'll give you that opportunity tonight. Or maybe this. I asked Randy, I said, what if I ask people to walk down front if they're willing to pray for 30 days specifically for one person to have an opportunity to share Jesus with? He said, you can try that. I may not have a job, but you could try that. No, he didn't say that. So we don't have to do that tonight. But if you would commit 30 days praying every day for a specific person that God could give you the opportunity to say, I want to talk to you about this story of Jesus Christ. Let's stand, let's sing. Faithful 